may be seated. Well, throughout the course of our lives, all of us have moments when our souls ask the question, what is wrong with the world? And it is not that we pursue this question, it is that this question imposes itself on us. What is wrong with the world? And sometimes we ask this question in a trivial way, like this past summer when I was sitting next to a kid at a baseball game, and I noticed that he was eating a peanut butter and sriracha sandwich, and my soul cried out, what is wrong with the world? They don't go together. But most often we ask this question when a sex scandal comes to light, when a mass shooter takes out dozens of people in minutes, or when a child gets cancer and dies. Our world is filled with tragedy upon tragedy, and if you live long enough, your soul will eventually ask the question, what's wrong with the world? And Genesis chapter 3 is God's answer to this question, and in short, the answer is sin. What's wrong with the world? Sin. There is sin in the world, and there is sin in us. The big idea of our text this morning is that sin is death, and sin breaks relationships. Sin is death, and sin breaks relationships relationship. And there are three major scenes in our text that I want to look at. Number one is Satan lies. We're going to see how the serpent lies to Adam and Eve. Scene number two, we're going to see Eve's eyes. We're going to see her eyes, how she sees the fruit after the lie sets in. And then number three, scene number three is Adam dies. We're going to see how Adam dies. So let's start with scene number one, Satan lies. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. We know from the scriptures that the serpent is the devil. He is described in verse 1 as the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now the word cunning is a wordplay with Genesis 2.25, which says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the word naked is the Hebrew word arom. Arom. So Adam and Eve... At the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve are naked and they felt no shame. They're physically naked. They're spiritually naked. There's no hiding. There's no clothing. There are no secrets. What you see with Adam and Eve is what you get. But the serpent is cunning. He is not a room. He is a room. A room. He is the opposite of naked. He is cloaked. He is covered. He has an agenda. And that agenda is death by lies. Death by deceit. He's not trying to get money from Adam and Eve. He's not trying to get information from Adam and Eve. He is trying to put them to death by lying to them. Jesus describes the devil in John 8, 44, as a murderer and the father of lies. What are his intentions? Murder. How does he accomplish it? Lies. He kills by deceit. Notice the subtle lie in verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So the lie begins with a pretense of innocence. He doesn't reveal his true motives. We ought not to expect the devil to say to Eve, hi, Eve, my name's Satan. I hate God. I hate you. I want to kill you. And I'm about ready to lie to you. Nice to meet you. We ought not to expect him to reveal his true motives. He is cunning. So he will hide behind the pretense of innocence. I'm just asking a question. Did Did I hear that right? Did God say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? This is a lie by inference, making God far more restrictive than he actually is. Genesis 2.16 is what God actually says. God says you are free 
You are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden with the exception of one. You are free to eat from all the trees. But the devil says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? The devil is not confused here. This is a subtle lie. He is changing the content of God's word. He is distorting the content of God's word. And this is his chief strategy in the world, to distort the content of God's word, to make obscure what is clear. And this happens every second of every day all around the world, that the devil is distorting the word of God, twisting the word of God, so that people do not see who God is. The way we know who God is is through his word. So when you distort the word of God, you distort the character of God. Please note this principle that the devil distorts the content of God's word so he can distort the character of God so that you do not see who God is. The temptation begins with the devil misquoting the Bible in verse one. Now, how does Eve respond? Well, she responds by mishandling the word of God. First, she omits the word free, any, and certainly in her response, Genesis 3, 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And so she omits some very important words. She omits the word free. God says you are free. She omits the word any. You're free to eat from any. And she diminishes the certainty of God's judgment for sin. She says, or you will die, but God actually says you will certainly die. The second mistake she makes is that she adds, or touch it. She adds a restriction that God does not give. This is a clue for us, indicating that Eve is likely sliding along with the devil in his implication that God is more restrictive than he actually is. And so the interrogation has begun. Eve is back on her heels, mishandling the word of God, which is her only hope of defeating the devil in this temptation. This is, this is the model of the devil. These are the schemes of the devil. The devil wants to move you away from what God has said, to make you vulnerable to sin. The way we defeat sin, the way we defeat temptation, is to place our feet on God's word and we do not move. We stand on what God has to say. All other ground is sinking sand. It will not sustain us in the temptation. And so the devil is making obscure what God has made clear, which opens the door for the direct lies. He begins with the subtle lie, and then he moves to the direct lies, and he tells three direct, clear lies. Lie number one, Eve, you can sin and live. Eve, you can sin and live. Verse four, no, you will certainly not die. You will not die. God is the liar. God's word is not true. Please notice that the first doctrine denied in the Bible is the doctrine of divine, of divine judgment. You can do what you want and get away with it. You can live life according to your own terms. You can call the shots and you can live. And so the lie is that you can do what you want. You can do what you want, Eve. You can sin and you can live. There is life outside of God. There is life outside of God's word. There is life outside of knowing him. Eve, you can sin and live. Lie number two, Eve, sin is the way to life. Not only can you sin and live, sin is the way to life. Verse five, in fact, God knows that when you eat, eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is the path to knowledge. It is the path to wisdom. And it is the path to godliness. You will be like God. 
The irony is that Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. They're already like God. And Eve is saying, I want to be more like God. I want to have more wisdom and more knowledge. This is where the devil baits the hook. When you go fishing, you don't just throw a hook in the water because a hook is not attractive to fish. So the devil isn't going to say to Eve, hey, Eve, do you want to die? She's going to say no. So he doesn't just put the hook in front of her. He baits the hook. See, when you go fishing, you, in order to catch fish, you have to lie to the fish. That's what you're doing. If you've, if you've ever thought about it, this is what you're doing. You're lying to the fish. So here's a, a worm on a hook. It's a tough break for that, that worm there, stabbed and drowned to death. <laughs> it's a tough life. But what, what's, what's happening is that you're shaking this little worm on a hook in front of the fish's face. All this, all this is, little fishy, is a nice, juicy worm. That's all that it is. You hide the hook. That is what you are doing. And here in our passage, the devil is dangling the bait in front of Eve's face, which sets up the third lie. Eve, you are missing out by obeying God. You are missing out. Eve, if you obey God, you're actually missing out on godliness. You're missing out on wisdom. You're missing out on knowledge. You're missing out on life. And I believed this lie for so many years of my life. I'm sure many of you believe this lie to this day. I think this, this lie is rooted in the idea of, I think it's called FOMO, is that right? Or FUBU, or what, I'm not sure, whatever it's called, FOMO, fear, fear of missing out. And see, I thought the Christian life was lame. It was just going to be lame. If I committed my life to Christ, I would live a boring, Ned Flanders Christian life. I thought I would miss out on so much. This is a foundational lie that holds people back from following Christ. Let's do a little thought experiment here. Let's think about life for a moment. Here's the question. Have you joyfully devoted your life to Christ? So just think about this question. Have you joyfully, voluntarily devoted your life to Christ in light of who he is and all that he has done for you? Have you devoted your life to him, to knowing him and loving him and obeying him? Are you all in with the Lord Jesus Christ? Many of you will say, absolutely, yes. It's a, no, it's a no-brainer. I, I wanna, where else am I going to go? Christ is my life. But many of you, if you're honest, you would say, no. No, I don't mind going to church. I don't mind Christian friends. I don't mind doing religious things. But I have not really devoted my life, my heart, my mind to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, why not? Why haven't you? If you're okay with church, if you're okay with religious people, if you're conceptually okay with the Bible, why have you not devoted your life to Christ? Well, the answer for most of you, if you've said no, is because you are afraid of what will happen if you actually walk in obedience to Christ. If you live life the way God wants you to live, you you think to yourself, if I live the way God wants me to live, my schedule will have to change. I won't have the type of friends that I want I won't have the type of reputation that I want. I won't have the type of money that I want or the type of career or the type of sex life that I want. I will miss out on life. And so we hedge our bets where we want to be religious, we want to be close to Christ, and we don't want to reject him, but we don't want to go all in either. Why? Because we believe the lie that we are missing out by obeying God. And if that's you here this morning where you've hedged your bets, you, you want life on your own terms and you want to be religious, you like the idea of Christianity, but you don't really want to obey him, you are believing the exact same lie that Eve believed in the Garden of Eden. 
And see, I want you to see, I want you to sense the very heartbeat of God in the giving of his commands. That, that God's commands are not burdensome. It doesn't mean they're easy. Oftentimes the, the commands of God are very difficult, but they're not burdensome. They are life-giving to the, to the core. Consider Genesis 1 and 2 for a moment. That God speaks and creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything in six days. And then on day seven, he creates Adam. And then from Adam, he creates Eve. And then he creates the institution of marriage. Chapter two ends at a high point. It says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve are in literal paradise. They are newlyweds. God officiated the wedding. They have perfect bodies. They had perfect intimacy with each other. No hiding, no secrets. Intimacy. They had an unbroken relationship with God. Adam had a job to tend the garden. Adam and Eve had a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. And they had all the food you could ever want or need. There were hundreds of trees and all kinds of vegetation in the Garden of Eden. I just made a list this week of what must have been there. Uh, There would have been a peach tree, so we have a picture of a peach. There would have been strawberries, pineapples, raspberries, blueberries. There would have been an apple tree, an orange tree. There would have been watermelon, bananas, plums. There was even a Chick-fil-A sandwich tree I've I've read, (laughs) which I think is pretty good. This was the tree of life, I think, in the middle. Eternal life to those who eat. (laughs) And I mean, there were hundreds of trees, hundreds and hundreds of trees in the Garden of Eden, in all the veggies you could imagine, and they were just there. This is the context of Genesis 2.16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, The context of the command, the context of the instruction comes from a good, gracious, generous God. You are free, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. There was one tree. There was one tree in the garden that God says you must not eat from it. And this tree was the opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate their love for God. It was their opportunity to demonstrate that they really trusted God. And that's what the commands of God are. I don't know how you view the commands of God, but when you see a command in the word of God, this is your opportunity to demonstrate, God, I trust you. I believe you. He who has my words and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. The one who ignores or disregards the commands of God is actually ignoring and disregarding God himself. And so God says, there's a tree here. Adam and Eve, here's your opportunity to demonstrate your love and trust for me. It is as if God has created the ultimate grocery store. And he says, go into the grocery store, you can eat whatever's in here. It's all, it's, this is, all of it is for you. The, the trees are not for God, they're for Adam and Eve. He said, it's all for you. But in the back, there's a, some rat poison Don't eat that. And so was God withholding something from Adam and Eve? Yes. He was withholding death and corruption from Adam and Eve. Because sin is death and corruption. God's commands are like a parachute, a perfect parachute that never fails. And see, a parachute restricts how fast you can fall to the ground. And see, when people go skydiving and they get down on the ground... 
You never hear them say, man, I wish I didn't have this burdensome parachute on. Think about how fast, I, how much faster I could have gone if I just didn't have it on. Nobody says that. Because you understand that the parachute itself enhances life and prevents death. This is the nature of God's word. The commands of God give life and blessing while preventing death and corruption. But at this point, the seed of of doubt has been planted in Eve's heart. Eve has taken the bait. The hook is in her mouth, which leads to scene number two, Eve's eyes. Eve's eyes. The principle is that lies influence eyes. When a lie sinks into your soul, how does it affect you? Well, it changes the way you see. And see, in order to to be deceived, you have to believe you are not deceived. Because if you knew you were deceived, then you wouldn't be deceived. And when that seed of doubt, when that lie gets into her heart, The anatomy of that lie is that it directly influences the way she sees. In verse 3, Eve was clear. Eat the fruit and die. She saw the tree as death. But in verse 6, look at verse 6. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good. That it was good for food. I've been pondering this phrase all week. That that which was once death for Eve is now her food. It's now the thing that sustains her, or she thinks is going to sustain her and give her life. Before she says, I eat that, I'm dead. Now she's thinking, I gotta eat that to live. The woman saw that the tree was good for for food, and this is what happens with sin all the time. When, When the devil, when our flesh dangles the hook, the baited hook in front of us, we begin to see life in sin. And we have to have it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit. Can you see this moment in your mind's eye? When the the seed of doubt, the lie has taken root in her heart, she's talking with the devil and she reaches out to grab the fruit If you could have called a 20-second timeout in that moment, hey, 20-second here, Eve, what are you thinking right now? What would she have said? Would she have said, you know what, I'm, I'm about ready to take everything down. I'm taking the whole world down. This is just pure suicide. Suicide mission, let's go. Is that what she would have said? No way. She would have said, I'm pursuing godliness. I am pursuing knowledge. I am pursuing wisdom. I need some food that will be good for me. I need some some knowledge. I need some wisdom. And I need to be more like God. And so Eve does not see the hook. She is deceived. So she, she ate it. She took it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Scene three. Adam dies. Adam dies. Eve touches the fruit, nothing happens. Eve eats the fruit, nothing happens. She gives some to Adam, Adam's holding the fruit, nothing happens. But when Adam eats, he dies. Eve ate first, Adam dies first. 
Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Sin came through Adam, not through Eve, but through Adam. So Adam eats and creation falls. But what does that mean for creation to fall? Well, it means that Adam and Eve now have broken relationships. There are four broken relationships that are due to the fall, that are due to sin. First, Adam and Eve now have a broken relationship with God. Adam and Eve are spiritually dead, and they go into hiding. They no longer enjoy intimate fellowship with God because they are sinners. They have rebelled against their creator. This is why God kicks them out of paradise. You can no longer be here. You know, uh, the Garden of Eden was the first temple of God where man would meet with God. And because of sin, God says, you can no longer be here. You must go. And because their relationship with God is broken, Adam and Eve have a broken relationship with each other. They now have a broken relationship with each other. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There's a progression in verse seven. First, their eyes are opened. Now, their eyes are opened. They, they, they got knowledge and they knew they were naked and then they make clothing for themselves. They make clothing for themselves, which is, it is so interesting. Why did they do this? Why did they make coverings for themselves, clothing for themselves? Well, we cover up because it's cold. Like it's cold. I, I don't want to be frozen, so we put clothing on. But remember, they're in paradise. And fig leaves aren't warm. I've never tried it, but they're not warm, I'm pretty sure. We cover up because we don't like our bodies. You don't like the way you look naked. So you cover up your body to hide your body. But remember, they had perfect bodies. I mean, perfect bodies. We cover up to hide from strangers, but there are no other people on the planet. And they aren't hiding from animals. They aren't thinking, we need to hide from these judgmental, body-shaming hippos and monkeys and giraffes. And like, they just make us feel bad, the body shame. That's not what's going on. That's not what's happening at all. So why do they cover up? To hide from each other. Do you know what's wrong with marriage? A man and a woman hide from each other. They hide from one another. Instead of Adam and Eve being naked and feeling no shame, now they are clothed with guilt and shame, which leads to a broken relationship with themselves. Instead of internal peace, Instead of internal joy, instead of internal freedom before God, now they are crushed by the weight of their own moral failure. And there are literally millions upon millions of people in our world, and maybe some here this morning, who are crushed by the weight of their own moral failure. Their inner world is now disordered. And lastly, sin leads to a broken relationship with creation. Sin leads to a broken relationship with creation. Romans 8 says that God subjected creation to futility. And creation did not voluntarily go into futility. It went against its will. That's how Paul describes it in Romans 8. Romans 8 says God subjected creation to futility to demonstrate to the world the horror of sin. So do you want to see the horror of sin? Do you want to see the hook of sin? Look at a Look at a hurricane. You know, creation is beautiful and deadly. A hurricane, you look at a hurricane and you see 
the damage and destruction and death that a hurricane brings. And God is teaching us something in the hurricane that sin kills. Sin destroys. You see a tornado. You see the death and destruction that a tornado can bring. What's going on there? God is teaching us about the true nature of sin, that sin destroys. It kills. Or when you get cancer, or a loved one gets cancer, or you hear about someone dying from cancer, one lesson we must learn is that sin is like cancer for our souls. God subjected physical, the physical universe to futility that we might see the horror of sin, the true nature of sin. We are blinded, so often we are blinded to the devastating consequences, the devastating nature of sin itself. Humanity, because of the fall, is not at peace with God. Humanity is not at peace with each other. Human beings are not at peace within themselves. And human beings are not at peace with creation. So what is wrong with the world? The answer, sin. Sin is what is wrong with the world. And what is wrong with you? Sin. By birth and by choice, you have followed Adam and Eve in your rebellion against God. You have known what is right and you have done what is wrong and your own conscience condemns you. Your own conscience. This is why we hide. This is why we we think, so many think, if people knew what I was really like, I would be utterly rejected. If people knew what I did in private, I would be utterly rejected. So we hide. We have these secret lives. And see, this is why you need Christ. This is why you need a Savior. If you have sinned, you need a Savior. This is why Christ came and lived and died for us, for us. He came because there's not peace between God and man. And if sinful man dies, if you die in your sin, you will face not only physical death, you will experience eternal death, spiritual death in hell. And Christ, because of his great love for you, he came and through the blood of the cross, he has reconciled sinful man to God, to all who have faith in Christ. He came to restore the relationship that we lost in the fall where we could have unbroken communion with God by faith in Christ. You need Christ in your life. He is the solution to sin. He has solved our deepest problem through living for us, dying for us, and rising for us from the dead. And see, every person, every one of you, the promise of the gospel, you believe that message, you're a new person. You're changed. When you see that Christ isn't just some man who lived 2,000 years ago, but he's the son of God who died in your place and rose again, and he offers you eternal life and relationship, when you believe that, you're changed forever. You need Christ. Now, I want to take just a few minutes, our closing minutes, to apply this text to our lives. How do we apply this text? Well, there's a hundred application points. I'll give you a couple. First, let God's word inform your eyes. Let God's word inform your eyes. The turning point in the story is verse six, Genesis 3, 6. 
When the woman saw, when the woman saw, see the lie of the devil is now informing her eyes, was the tree good for food? Biblical answer, yes, Genesis 2.9. Was the tree delightful to look at? Biblical answer, yes, Genesis 2.9. Did the tree give knowledge? Yes. And did the tree give life? No. It brought death. Eve did not see the hook because her eyes were not informed by the word of God. See, Adam and Eve, they should have said to each other, first, isn't it weird that a snake is talking to us right now? That should be a dead giveaway. Something's off. And second, they should have said, what does God say about the tree? It looks good. What does God say about the tree? And what God says is, on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The devil says, no, you will certainly not die. This is the fundamental fundamental battle that exists in our souls. Will we stand on what God has to say, or will we trust our eyes? You cannot trust your eyes alone. Your eyes are not infallible. If we are to live the Christian life, brothers and sisters, we must let God's word shape and form and instruct our eyes that we might see the hook of sin and the blessing of obedience. Naturally, in your, your sinful, my sinful, our sinful condition, naturally, we see the hook in obedience and the blessing of sin. We get it exactly opposite. And so we keep taking the bait over and over and over again. If you trust your eyes, you will die. You will die. Just like Eve died. Just like Adam died. Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must love the word of God. We must read the word of God, study the word of God, pray the word of God, and obey the word of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, that you might be able to put to death your sinful heart. You do that how? By the power of God's spirit and by the power of God's word. Number two, husbands, you need to recognize your wife is not the head of your family. Husbands, you need to recognize that your wife is not the head of your family. The devil does not go directly after Adam. He goes through Eve to get to Adam. Step one for the devil, drive a wedge through the union of one man and one woman to put them to death. Go through Eve to take down Adam and Eve. And so, gentlemen, husbands, please listen to me. God has given you the responsibility to lead your home. God has given you the responsibility to lead your home. He has not given this responsibility to your children, and he has not given this responsibility to your wife. He has given you big shoulders to carry that responsibility. And there are a hundred instructions, a hundred tips I could give you, but I want to give you two in leading your home. Number one, have a great attitude. How's your attitude at home, men? Have a great attitude. Oftentimes, men are distracted at home. They're passive at home. Men walk in from work. They go into their room. They put on their grumpy pants. They have a bad attitude. They're lazy. They're sitting around. 
But brothers, the most important spiritual battle you will ever fight is the battle in your home. It's not what you do with your friends. It's not what you do at work. It's not how you behave at church. The most important battle you will ever fight is who will be Lord of your home. Will you obey God and lead your family? Will, will you lay down your life for your bride and for your kids? And see, so much of leading in the home comes down to your attitude. It comes down to rejoicing in the Lord. What is the strength? In order to lead your home well, you need power. You need strength that you don't have. What, where does that power come from? The joy of the Lord is to be your strength. The joy of the Lord. You do not rejoice in God. You cut yourself off from the power you need for the Christian life. The joy of the Lord, the joy of knowing Christ is to be our strength. It is to shape our attitude. So look at your wife and smile at her. Look at your kids and smile at them. Talk with them. Engage with them. Be a joy for your wife and your kids. Lead like Jesus and not like Adam. I mean, isn't it stunning when you realize that Adam was standing next to Eve the whole time? Where was Adam in this temptation? He was standing right there. He took his tail, put it right between his legs, cowered down. See, Jesus was tempted just like Adam was tempted. Jesus was tempted over the course of his life. He was tempted in the desert for 40 days by the devil. He was tempted in the garden of Gethsemane. He was tempted by the devil, and every time he won because he stood on God's word. He won by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and he won by the power of the sword of the Spirit. He knew what God had to say. Even though the devil tempted him with the word of God, twisted the word of God, he stood and was victorious over sin. He is the one we follow. The one who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The first place the gospel must be practiced in your life is in your home, towards your wife and towards your kids. Many men say, I'm too busy to pray with my family. I'm too busy to read the Bible with my family. I'm too busy to sing. I don't feel comfortable praying. I don't feel comfortable reading. I mean, what happens if my wife asks me a question I don't know? What if my kids ask me a question that I don't know? My kids don't always seem to be paying attention. I feel embarrassed to sing at church. And I just want to say, men, it is unacceptable not to lead your family. It is simply unacceptable. You can't worship God and reject what he's asking you to do. In the same way, if someone broke into your house and a thief was at your door, could you imagine a thief trying to get into your front door, trying to get into a window, and you're sitting there with your wife and your kids? The thief is literally coming, and you turn to your wife and you say, Honey, I just don't feel comfortable engaging with a thief right now. That is an unacceptable answer. And wives understand that. Why do you say, honey, it's nice knowing you, but you need, to go, you need to go deal with this guy. And that would be right. That's right. And gentlemen, if you don't lead your home, it's not as if the spiritual battle goes away. 
If you do not lead your home, you just put the spiritual battle on the shoulders of your wife and you make her fight it. And you open up your family to so much unnecessary difficulty. So it's your job, men. Lead your family. Build reading the Bible and prayer into the rhythms of your life. When you get in the car, what we do, we don't, we're not perfect at this. When we get in the car, we just pray. Say, time out, everybody. Um, we're gonna pray. Acknowledge the Lord. One minute, two minutes, three minutes. Acknowledge the Lord. Where do you expect your kids to learn how to pray? Who's the best person to teach them? It's their dad. It's their dad. Where are they to learn about the priority of the scriptures? It's from their dad. Certainly from their mom. Certainly from their mom, but their dad, there's a role that God has given you to play in the family. And when you take responsibility to lead your family, God will give you grace. He will give you grace, not to be a bully, but to be like his son. To be like his son, Jesus Christ. So lead your family, not in your own strength, but in the joy of the Lord. Lead your family like Christ, who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Again, I'm not perfect at this, but one of the most common prayers I pray when I'm going home as I say, God, help me to win the most important battle of the day. The most important battle of the day. Lots of important battles. The most important battle of the day, men, is when you step into your home. Who will you be like? Who will you obey? How will you live? Now, ladies, we'll get to you next week. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us, Lord. What an what a incredible joy it is to know you. What an incredible joy it is to follow you. Thank you that you love us. I pray for us. Help us, Lord, to I just pray for the men here. There's so many men who, who are better models than I am and leading their home. I pray you would strengthen them and encourage them, comfort them. And for the, the men who are distracted, who are discouraged, Lord, I pray that you would just wake them up by your grace. Help them to get into the fight. Lord, there's more to life than our families. No doubt about that. But Lord, we want to honor you in our homes. So give us the strength we need. Give us the grace we need. Give us the power we need to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.